Welcome to Disarming Leviathan. My name is Caleb. This podcast is designed to equip you to engage American Christian nationalists as a mission field. Today, I talk with Pastor David Ritchie, who pastors in Amarillo, Texas. He's also written the book, Why Do the Nations Rage? The Demonic Origin of Nationalism, which we will explore in this episode. I very much appreciate the work of Pastor Ritchie, who devotes a lot of his energy to understanding the theological and spiritual dynamic of American Christian nationalism. And so without further ado, here is my interview with David Ritchie. David, how would you describe or define American Christian nationalism? I like the attempt to define American Christian nationalism from a theological angle. It's certainly a sociological reality that's been studied from the angle of the social sciences, but I think it's helpful to locate American Christian nationalism as, as essentially a disordered love for the American nation. And essentially, that's all that nationalism is. It's a, a love for nation that is now twisted into something that is idolatrous, something that is commanding more than just a, a rightly ordered patriotism. It's, it's commanding a loyalty that su- supersedes all other loyalties. It is something that becomes the, the highest allegiance, the highest issue of concern. And when we add that modifier Christian nationalism to it, it essentially it is using the language and the categories of Christianity to add a sense of validity Uh, to add a sense of divine sanction to that nationalism. And so, in many ways, I I think that the best way to understand American Christian nationalism is is a a species of religious syncretism. It's a blending of two disparate religions that really shouldn't belong to one another and belong together, um, but they're fused with one another. And, And so I see American Christian nationalism as essentially a politicized religion that is in the veneer of the Christian gospel. So you mentioned uh, it's it's a, an affection or a love, and nationalism is a disordered love. How would you talk about the difference between nationalism and patriotism? So this is a distinction that is in a lot of literature, a lot of scholarly literature on the subject of nationalism. And it's one that I think is helpful because I think that there can be a rightly ordered love for one's nation. I, I think that we can love the nation to which we have been sent. We can love this place um, and this time that God has allowed us to be born in. Um, We can be able to even have a sense of godly gratitude for the privileges and the freedoms and the liberties that we get to be able to enjoy. Nationalism is when that, again, morphs into something else. It becomes the issue of highest concern to where everything else, including our own Christianity, has to be subordinated to the nationalist cause. It's something when the nation or our political vision of the nation becomes a type of ultimate value, um, something that really is not just a matter of political preference. It's not just a mere love for one's nation, but it is something that is more likened unto worship. And as a pastor, I'm sure that you've seen this up close and personal. How have you seen this disordered love in like normal day-to-day life in your congregation? Well, I love my community. I love Amarillo, Texas. It's my hometown. It's the place where I was born, the place I was raised, um, the place I became a Christian, and the place that I've always done ministry. And so my concern with Christian nationalism really is coming from a, a pastoral 
place. It's coming from a pastoral love for my church and a pastoral love for my community. And I'll, I'll tell you when I was really able to distinguish it as such an active threat. Just in these last few elections, it does seem like there's been an accelerating sense of anxiety and fear at a social level. But particularly among many Christians, there is this very real, very active temptation to want to share one's politics or one's political vision or one's political beliefs fervently and eloquently and clearly and passionately, but at the same time, not being willing to do that for the Christian gospel. And so when I began to notice that phenomenon happening, I, I was essentially convinced that this type of political allegiance and political fanaticism has functionally become a type of gospel. It's not the gospel of the kingdom of God, but it is proclaiming a type of good news, but it's for a version of the kingdom of man. And so I began to sense a, a sense of zeal to say, no, like, we can be politically engaged because politics can be a good thing. It just can never be an ultimate thing. And when it becomes an ultimate thing, it has the capacity to justify horrendous behavior and anti-Christian ways of thinking, anti-Christian ways of speaking, anti-Christian ways of going about our lives and living. And so when it began to cross that line into worship is when I began to sense a sense of divine call and burden to be able to, to speak up, to speak out, and to try to provide some level of biblical and theological language to be able to locate this. Um, but it is a lived reality, Caleb. I mean, I know that you've experienced this as a fellow pastor, that I see American Christian nationalism not as a mere abstract idea that is out there and that is being talked about on cable news and on social media. It is a present force that has actively wounded marriages in my own congregation, uh, whenever you have a particular spouse that is obsessed and committed to a certain QAnon ideology um, at the expense of alienating themselves from their own spouse and even maybe their own adult children. I know a pastor that's in this community, in this area, that was actively approached and invited to be a part of a type of militia organization that he was concerned about had the capacity to be violent. I've seen churches in my own community not only fail to address this as an active source of idolatry, but even lean into it and being able to benefit um, by coddling this idol rather than confronting it. And I should say, you know, I am more of a conservative leaning person. Um, I, I would describe myself on the political spectrum as someone that leans more conservative. However, this was something that was that was becoming something more than just that. Um, I saw it essentially using Christian language and Christian categories to advance a kingdom that was fundamentally not just the kingdom of God, but opposed to the kingdom of God. And it was seemingly going after the affections and the worship of the people that I'm called to reach and that I'm called to serve. And for that reason, it's something that I think needs to be on the radar of American Christian pastors. You mentioned a few times the spiritual dynamic of American Christian nationalism, phrases like it's syncretism, there's the affections, uh, and you wrote a whole book on the spiritual realities underneath American Christian nationalism. Tell us about what, what compelled you to write that book and, and how did it come about in your mind and then as you actually put pen to paper? One of the things I began to 
understand during early 2020, I, I was doing a, a reading, a deep reading of the book of Ephesians. And I was curious about this idea that Paul uses several times throughout the book of the rulers and the authorities. Older translations of the Bible will oftentimes use the language of powers and principalities. And I, I simply began to be curious of what are these spiritual forces and what are they doing? When Paul uses this language, where is this language coming from? And one of the things I began to notice is the powers and principalities are very active. Um, they're very active spiritual forces that are trying to press in upon the Christian church to divide their allegiance, um, to be able to divide them from one another and, and to distract them um, from their call as the people of God and from embracing really the new life that Christ has purchased for them. And again, this isn't a cultural moment where, you know, George Floyd had just been murdered and there was such erupting division across the nation, particularly in regards to race and racial division. And I couldn't help but think, I, I think that the powers and principalities are active in this. Because when you look at books like Ephesians and Colossians in particular, the type of agency that these powers possess is, is really directed towards dividing people along lines of ethnicity and cultural allegiance. The powers are very interested in getting the Jew and the Gentile to be divided, um, to go backwards, so to speak, towards their old cultural alliances and their old cultural allegiances, because what Christ has done, what Christ has accomplished is essentially broken down that dividing wall of hostility that used to be between Gentiles and Jews. He has made one people together in Christ and that oneness, that unity, that, that mystery is something that is actually a display to the powers and principalities of the manifold wisdom of God. And so going deeper and trying to explain um, the, the Old Testament heritage of these words and even just kind of like the ancient worldview of what these concepts meant, I began to see that Paul's very much under the understanding that there's certain spiritual forces that are very much active in the nations of this world. Um, there's a spiritual dominion of darkness, and much of that dominion is focused on dividing people from one another, calling people to be at war with one another, um, calling people to have an idolatrous love for the nation. And so you could even see um, the Tower of Bible episode as kind of being like almost like the, the, the most ancient moment of this, where mankind is united together, but it's a, it's a very... Um, a very idolatrous unity that they're sharing. They're wanting to be able to bring the city of man up essentially into heaven and exalting the city of man into a place of ultimate allegiance, ultimate authority, um, literally bringing the, the city of man up into heaven. And God scatters the nations. And from that moment, um, the Bible will later in Deuteronomy chapter 32 give a theological commentary and talk about how essentially as the nations are divided, there are these spiritual powers of darkness that essentially have a, a level of hegemony and authority over the nations of this world, except for God's people, um, God's people, Israel. And so for the longest time, um, really the nations of this world are under a type of spiritual darkness and they're divided. They're, they're warring. They're having an idolatrous vision of their own culture and their own nation, their own kingdoms. But all of that changes when Jesus Christ comes, when he's, killed on a Roman cross, the ultimate symbol of the empire of power. 
and then he rises again. He overcomes the power of death. And from that place, he's able to inaugurate this new kingdom that's not just restricted to the Jewish people, not just restricted to the people of Israel, but that he actually welcomes people from all nations into that. Um, I began to see that aspect of the gospel as not just a, a spiritual claim, but a political claim. And it's a political claim that very much does have bearing on how we see and discern spiritual reality. And, and we live in a modern era. We live in the post-enlightenment where it's just easy to kind of see reality as nothing more than matter in motion. But I believe that when we begin to understand what the Bible has to say about spiritual beings and powers and principalities, we are able to understand something about the nature of our reality that we simply cannot understand and we cannot see outside of those categories. Because with nationalism, it's undeniable that there's this temptation that is historically present throughout all of history to be able to worship one's nation as something that is ultimate and um, of, of the highest concern. But the spiritual reality basically is showing that there's actually a spiritual agency that is seducing us to that very activity, um, that there is still around us, active powers of darkness that are trying to lure us and deceive us back into that. They've been defeated. They've been delegitimized by Jesus, but they're still active in the world and they will still be active until Jesus comes and makes all things new. But that spiritual reality is something that I wanted to be able to equip people to be able to see, just to be able to ask the question of why is it so alluring to give the affections of my heart to a political cause? Why is it so alluring to give my nation something that really is equivalent to worship. And I want to suggest that there is a, a spiritual agency and a spiritual reason to that. In many of the American Christian nationalist organizations, the leadership will leverage biblical language, spiritual language. There's even kind of this tethering of certain spiritual movements with uh, taking over dominionism, seven mountain mandate, that type of thing. And so we're also hearing, you know, I'm hearing you talk about the, maybe the demonic or evil forces of spiritual forces that are at work here. But there's also many people who are claiming that the spirit of God is at work calling us to take power. How might we discern the difference between the spirit of the kingdom of God or, and the spirit of the kingdoms of this world? Maybe we could frame it that way. It's a great question. And I think it's a thing that I also explore a little bit later on in my book where I, I talk about the reality that wherever demons are present, they're almost always presenting false doctrine. They're presenting a false gospel. In fact, whenever you see false teachers described, they're oftentimes equated with and very much alongside spiritual forces that are inspiring them and leading them. And again, another thing that I began to notice is that the language that is being used by a lot of people that would... Um, very much be categorized and even self-identified as nationalist are using language in such a way they're using Christian terms, but then supplanting those terms with a nationalist meaning. And so nationalism will oftentimes have Christ-like figures or messianic-like figures that are the savior. Um, you, you see this throughout world history where leaders and political um Folks are exalted almost as types of godmen um, that are suffering, but they're suffering redemptively. Um, they are the ones that go forth and fight the battles that we cannot fight for ourselves. They are the ones who will be our justice. They are the ones who will be our vindication. 
And there's this temptation that is so very strong to frame political leaders, not just as rulers, but as Messiah-like figures. Um, nationalism oftentimes will cast its own eschatology, its doctrine of the end times, where you see this happening almost every single election cycle. If our side wins, we will be able to usher in finally our kingdom. We will be able to usher in um, the kingdom that we've always wanted, that we've always desired. But if the other side wins, it is absolute chaos. It's the destruction of the world. All things will come to a, a cataclysmic and triumphant end. And, and so that exalted language about how political outcomes are really tied to kind of like this eschatological vision of the future. Um, even there's the temptation to be able to see a given nation or a political tribe within a nation as a type of chosen people or a type of God's people it is very much um, something that I see present. And so what I argue for in my book is that for every single major doctrine of the Christian faith, there is a nationalist distortion of it. Somewhere in world history, um, there is a, a doctrine of God, a doctrine of Christ, a doctrine of salvation, a doctrine of the end, a doctrine even of inspiration in Holy Scripture. Um, I mean, we've always heard you know phrases like the U.S. Constitution being framed as something that is divinely inspired. Um, that this is a, a very active force in human history, and it's by no means unique to the United States of America. Um, nationalism and the temptation to kind of idolize one's nation, it's it's been there since arguably Babel. But what I see happening is whenever these forces really get a hold of our hearts, they begin to transform even the definition of the gospel, or at least the functional gospel in our heart. And so I, I view that as something that I would encourage people to be able to be discerning on. Whenever you see a political leader presenting themselves as a type of Christ figure, and promising things that really only Christ can promise. When they begin to talk about their vision of the future, either good or bad, as something that really is a little bit more eschatological rather than practical, that is when we need to have our ears alerted and, and be careful to discern, is this person just using religious language or are they offering to us essentially a false gospel? Yeah, we also see in the scriptures that the forces of evil present themselves as an angel of light, that evil rarely presents itself as evil. It's always deceptive. It's always like a serpent in the garden or the tempter in the desert. And so many, I think, in America, especially evangelicals, we have this impoverished imagination of how evil actually might work in the world. We oftentimes will think it's some kind of monstrous figure, but in reality, it's, it's the thing that's almost righteous or 95% righteous with the 5% evil. It presents itself as righteous, but really is simply uh, trying to bring about evil ends. Absolutely. It's the deception that, that most closely approximates the truth that is more effective, that's more capable of deceiving and leading people astray. And I, I believe that this is really why so many people within the evangelical church have Bought into American Christian nationalism so fervently is they think it's the real McCoy. They believe that this is faithfulness to Jesus' teaching. Uh, the leaders talk 
with a lot of scripture. They seem to stand for really righteous causes like uh, right to life and the protection for the family and things like that. And so there is a lot of alignment with uh, their currently held religious beliefs, uh, their Christian beliefs. But there is this distortive element to it, and and it seems to have to do with power. You talk a little bit in about uh, about that in the book. Talk to us about how you know the front or the face or the stage presents itself as righteous, but in reality, what it's calling us to do is kind of this broken aspect of power. Talk to us a little bit about how to discern good uses of power or godly uses of power and maybe demonic uses of power. Certainly, because I, I think you're bringing up an important point in the question itself, which is that God is the author of power and he created man and woman. He created humanity to have dominion over creation. And so the enemy in this equation is not power itself, but a misuse of power. And in the kingdoms of this world, really what you see is a strict reliance only on coercive power, only on self-serving power, only on types of power that are dependent upon this idea of a zero-sum game where we have to retain and protect and acquire power at all costs. And if they have power at all, if our enemies have any sense of empowerment, it comes at a cost to us. And that is simply not a Christian way of thinking. That is a worldly way of thinking. It's a way of thinking that has been confined um, by the categories of this world. And I think anytime that we think of power as something that is strictly reliant on the power of the sword, um, we're, we're essentially saying that the cross is not enough. Uh, because the thing about the kingdom of God is it, it comes in such a different way. It is a form of power, um, even the ultimate power. But when Christ stands before Pilate and says, my kingdom is not of this world, he, he's making such an astonishing claim about the nature of his power that I'm actually going to take this instrument of your power, the cross, and I'm going to transform it into something that is a display of true power, um, which is self-sacrificial love and the redeeming power of grace and redemption that has the power not only to coerce behavior, but to actually transform people from the inside out. I mean, that's the power of God, that he's able to take those who are once his enemies and bring them to his table as his family, as sons and daughters um, of the living king. That's what the blood of Christ is able to do. That's what Christ is able to do in our life. And I think anytime that we're reliant on simply the structures of powers of this world in order to be able to execute our agenda, it's essentially a, a, a very sub-biblical view of power and what power has been designed for. Because even in the Garden of Eden, God gives man and woman a garden to, to cultivate, um, to bring forth the, the potential of what he's placed into creation, um, to bring it to fruition and fruitfulness. And, and I think that's a a good microcosm of how power should work. Um, we're here to not just have dominion, but to serve um, that which is underneath our dominion, um, to cultivate, to bring forth for the the glory of God, to unfold something uh, in a way that has the capacity to glorify God in all those ways. And so I think that Christians can be in politics. I think Christians can be politically engaged, but they need to do so 
with that distinctively Christian understanding of power. So, uh, Pastor David, how do I do that? <laughs> how do Christians engage in the polit- political process? How do they serve in government with that cross power instead of sword power? And that, in so many ways, is the million-dollar question at the moment. Because even those of us who are asking that question, it seems just like the horizons of what we're capable of thinking of is are so limited by the sin-fractured world that we live in. But I do believe that there is a crucial importance of the local church itself. Um, I love that phrase that Eugene Peterson writes of envisioning the church as a colony of heaven in the wet, in the land of death. And I think that we should seek to, first and foremost, truly aspire to cultivating congregations and cultures of people in the local church that are distinctively different than the world around them. Uh, We need to be inviting people into a shared way of life, of following Jesus that looks and feels and tastes and smells distinctively different from the kingdoms of this world. And if we're just playing power politics and identity politics, just like the rest of the world, the world is not going to be able to see that distinctiveness. And, and so there is a, a crucial importance of when we gather as the people of God and when we worship Jesus together, when we share our life in Christian fellowship, we have the opportunity to not just declare, but to also display the kingdom of God to a world that desperately needs to see an alternative way of life. And so that that's, that's crucial. But I also think that there's a, a crucial importance specifically for pastors to be able to persuasively and powerfully um, be able to get people terms and categories and names to be able to understand the the spiritual reality that is around them. Because cable news, social media, all of these um, news sources or sources of media are, are not just sources of information. They're, they're vehicles of spiritual formation. And you could argue that they're forming us and malforming us um, to be a different type of person. And so we need to be very discerning in the types of habits that we're engaging and saying, is this particular habit, is this particular perspective leading me to be a person that is more and more like Jesus and more and more of a ambassador for his kingdom? Or am I simply being formed to be a person that is more of this world that is constantly living in that place of anxiety and rage and fear um, that is so definitive of this particular cultural moment. And so for many of our listeners, we are hearing this where we, we, many of us kind of agree this is bad, that the spiritual uh, underpinnings of American Christian nationalists are evil, demonic, whatever word you want to use. And yet our Aunt Betty is still going to be at the 12-year-old's birthday party next week. And so what do we do? Uh, Would you give us some coaching on how it is that we can missionally engage our loved ones who are wrapped up in this spiritual reality? Absolutely. A few ideas that come to mind. Number one is when you talk about these things, it is absolutely crucial to clearly define your terms because there are certain buzzwords that mean different things within different social tribes. And so when you are describing Christian nationalism as a problem, use clear language. Um, I, I think that 
distinction between patriotism and nationalism is very helpful. I think it's important to be able to say it is possible to have a rightly ordered love for your nation, but it's also possible for that love to become disordered and idolatrous. And that's my concern. That's the thing that I'm talking about. And moreover, I'm concerned that people are using Jesus's name to justify and to provoke that disordered love. And most Christians would at least agree that it's possible for any love to become a disordered love. And and so if you can at least come to an agreement on those basic definitions, um, that's very, very helpful. And it helps people to be able to understand kind of where your motives are. Secondly, I think it's crucial to understand that no one just wakes up one day and says, you know what, I'm going to become an idolater. Um, I'm going to be an an angry Christian nationalist and I'm going to alienate um, many people in my life um, because of my idolatrous love for this thing. I, I think people get to this place because they're legitimately afraid and they're legitimately angry in response to that fear. Okay. And so there are um, aspects of this world that are really concerning and that are coming from the left. There's absolutely the capacity for the political left to become extremely authoritarian. The question is, how do we respond to that? Um, Do we use the same power tactics? Do we use the same utilitarian ethic of the the ends justify whatever dishonorable or unethical mean um, to be able to get our agenda um, to come forth politically? I think it's important to be able to use that. And so you have to you approach the conversation from a place of empathy and even identify with it. I, I can understand why you're concerned and scared about the nature of this world and the things that are going on in this world. I'm concerned too. The, the issues were responding to that concern differently. And then probably the most important thing is we have to understand what are we trying to accomplish in a given conversation? Um, You're not going to be able to just in one small conversation likely shift someone's entire political presuppositions. Um, The best you can hope for is to move the ball forward just a little bit, to make just a little bit of forward progress. And I think the way that you do that is you have to be able to talk outside of the redundant political talking points that are just everywhere at any given time. Because a lot of times we're not talking to a person, we're just arguing on behalf of one ideology or another and spouting talking points towards one another. And I want to work hard to break out of those types of conversations. Um, I I love this uh, Emily Dickinson poem that I've been using a lot whenever I talk about this very subject. And she has a short poem that simply tell all the truth, but tell it slant. And she talks about how success in circuit lies and that even this this metaphor of like seeing a, a lightning flash, it's it's so bright, it's so overwhelming that that one lightning flash, if it all comes at once, it can blind someone. So instead, she says, truth must dazzle gradually, or else every man be blind. And there's a lot of wisdom to that that concept of telling all the truth, but telling it slant, maybe coming at the situation from a different angle. So something that I've found helpful that I use in the book that I've also used in other um, forms of communication is to simply look at other examples of Christian nationalism that are not American nationalism to be able to understand, well, this is how they did it. You know, there were a whole lot of German pastors and theologians that actively endorsed and were very excited about Hitler. Um, Some even saying that in Hitler, 
has come to the German nation, the redemption of Christ. You know, that's strong language and scary language. And we could say, you know, we're not above that. We could still see that happen here, and we are seeing that happen here. Um, to be able to look for other examples of, you know, I, I found a, a bizarre example where in the early parts of the Dutch War for Independence, they were characterizing, you know, a, a particular leader as a reincarnated version of King David, and they were even envisioning the, the Dutch people as a new Israel. And so if you see that, you can show someone like, isn't it odd that people in Holland thought that they were the new Israel? And that just gives us one step closer to be able to say, it's also pretty odd when we envision America as the new Israel, because it's really not. That's not really the appropriate way to be able to, to understand that concept. And so again, tell all the truth, but come at it from a different angle, coming at, coming out of it um, from a standpoint of we're not just going to repeat talking points, but we're going to actually introduce a novel perspective. Yeah, I love that. Change oftentimes happens through hospitality and over time. Yes. And I love that you're highlighting that. David, thank you so much for being with us. Tell us where we can find uh, your work. Absolutely. So you can buy my book. It's called Why Do the Nations Rage? The Demonic Origin of Nationalism. It's sold wherever books are sold, um, especially online, I should say. It's probably not at your local bookstore if you're not in Amarillo, Texas, but you can easily find it on Amazon. Um, you can also look me up on Twitter. I'm at, at David A. Ritchie. Um, last name is spelled R-I-T-C-H-I-E. And a few other things that are going to be coming up at least the fall of 2023, I'm going to be speaking at Denver Seminary at the Gospel Initiative Conference that's going to be on Christian nationalism. I have the, the privilege of um, giving one of the plenary talks there, and I'm really excited that a, a leading seminary is going to be po putting on a conference and hosting a conference on this crucial topic of Christian nationalism. That's going to be October 13th. And then um, I've been privileged to be a part of the American Values Coalition in a new project that they're uh, promoting this fall called Mending Division Academy. Um, essentially, it's a video library of resources for Sunday schools and small groups to be able to study some of these big ideas. Um, they're going to be exploring how conspiratorial thinking works, how to be able to understand the media. Um, there's even a, a great session on deconstruction and understanding the phenomenon of deconstruction. And I put together a, a four lecture series simply called When Politics Becomes Religion. And we're going to be exploring the idea of political idolatry in the church and how to confront it and how to work against it and to point people to the true hope that is in Christ and in his coming kingdom. David, thank you so much. Uh, I very much appreciated your book and your ongoing ministry out of Texas, but also uh, across the country and looking forward to the Denver Conference and the Mending Division Academy. Thanks again for joining us today on Disarming Leviathan. Thank you, brother. It's an honor to be with you today.